0: Come start a in podcast episode three. I am the How? voice.
1: Say hello, Kyle. Uh, hello? And hello,
0: you can...
2: When can I go out?
0: Uh, guys, uh what's what's happening? I I I was I thought I was asleep and now I'm sitting in front of a microphone. Are we are we recording the podcast right now?
2: I I I think so. Yes. I don't know. I just had the strangest dream. Uh,
0: uh, that's weird. Well, I guess we can start. Uh welcome to Wrapped in Podcast episode 3 everybody. Uh, we've got a lot to cover i think this was a really fun episode
1: well i'll just say i i loved this one uh and i would say if you were to ask me to rank my favorite twin peaks episodes of all time i think i would put episode three of twin peaks the return right up there with the cooper's dream episode and the season one and season two finales uh in my top five ever
2: and I suppose I have it ranked somewhere amongst the Ben Horn plays at the Civil War episodes in season two.
1: Wow. Wow! <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow.
0: Ken. Wow. We'll get there. That's, we'll get there. that's, that's, that's intense. Okay, good, good. Great. So we start out and the first place we go is Coop is falling through the stars. We see this sort of weird scene of, of water and like a, a sort of splash of some sort of purple stuff. I kind of forgot about that scene the first time I watched this episode because I was so wrapped up in what was happening from minute to minute. But when I rewatched it, I thought it was kind of striking. It kind of seems like the opening sequence to Orphan Black.
1: It's gorgeous. I really like looking. Yeah, I agree, Ken. It's, it's just this really neat image. And, and what I wonder is, with it, with it being purple, how did this look to, to Dr. Jacoby watching at uh-huh. home?
2: I mean, there's something very painterly about all of this stuff in the beginning, too. And I, I know I was sarcastically sort of dismissive of the episode, but there's a lot of really great visual stuff going on, of course. And uh, We're going to get into quite a lot of it specifically. But the colors and the imagery and, you know, just the artistic balls to do this thing where Cooper is in this dreamscape for the first however many minutes of the episode. It's handled really well. It's very impressive.
0: The next thing we see is Coop kind of kind of going through a chute and landing on a ledge in this, again, purple-hued scene, looking out over a vast sort of ocean in in what's kind of like a patio. And he goes inside the box, or this this building. I I called it a box because later it's going to look like a box. And as he opens up this window and crawls into this room, he's in this room with a fireplace and a woman on a couch in a red dress with skin and... Scars over where her eyes should be, and one of the things that I have seen this week, very recently, is a syncing up of what's going on in New York and what's going on with Coop in this room. No, I haven't. Did you did you guys see that video? Okay, I, I posted it on the on the on the podcast's Facebook website. It's really interesting to see because it shows what's happening in the New York room after. Coop is ejected from the box. So you see Sam and Tracy making out, getting more physical, and then the blackness and the spectral figure appearing at the same time that Coop is here in the scene at the beginning of episode three. Uh, and what's interesting is at the point where the spectral figure is eating Tracy and Sam's heads is the point where in a minute, Nido is slapping Coop in the face, repeatedly. Uh, it's, a, it's the exact same moment is when they're being eaten. So that, you know, I don't know what that means, but I thought that was pretty interesting and I'd encourage everybody to watch it. You know, we've got this this character that I, I think I just called her Nido. We don't know her as Nido. Nobody talks to her, but that's, that's what her, her name is in the credits. She makes these weird breathy sounds, but otherwise doesn't talk. And she seems to have a lot of urgent messaging for Coop.
2: One of the cool things about these early painterly kinds of scenes is that they make me uh, go to this Lynchian imagination place where I'm just sort of thinking of associations that I have with the imagery. Because, you know, there's not plot to follow, really. There's just images and associations. And she reminds me of a character in uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, with hands uh, over the um, blank space on his face where eyes should be. Uh, And she reminds me of uh, The Tempest. Those are pearls that were his eyes, which is quoted in T.S. Eliot, uh, The Wasteland, I think, which is then quoted in a David Gray song, which is anti-capitalism called Sell, Sell, Sell. So those are the things I thought of when I saw her, and I have no idea if they mean anything to anybody, but I think that's the cool thing about the sequence is that you can just kind of sit and do that.
1: Yeah, the, the interesting thing to me is that it seems deliberately calculated to, to disorient not just the viewer generally, but specifically the computer streaming video, because obviously this is the one, episode three, that came out immediately after one and two aired on Showtime, so this was the one that people were most likely to stream on their computer, and and when I eventually gave in to peer pressure from the two of you and went and watched it, I had that initial reaction of thinking, okay, is this my computer buffering, uh, or is this an intentional visual effect? And and I think that's just an interesting use uh, of technology by, by Lynch taking advantage of those technological advances that have occurred in the last quarter century, and it just raises, in my mind, interesting possibilities both inside and outside of the show. I mean, on the outside, it's literally possible for the Dalai Lama to to live tweet a Twin Peaks episode as it's airing. I don't think he's going to, but how cool would that be? And how cool is it to know that that's possible? And then within the show... Think about the possibilities that exist with denizens of Twin Peaks being able to mark themselves as safe on Facebook. You know, you see that uh, in the real world. That it would be really helpful if people could put, could put, for instance, you know, Catherine Martell marked herself safe after Packard Mill fire, or people could mark themselves safe after the Miss Twin Peaks pageant. That would have come in really handy a quarter century ago. And then everyone would have Facebook
2: friend requests from Martell's uh, weird. Alias, alter ego. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Uh, that's, a, that's a plot line I had enjoyed forgetting. It's interesting, though, because the, the only way you would know that your computer wasn't buffering necessarily would be the continuity of the sound, right? That it, you, The sound would go out if your computer is buffering. So if you're listening to it on your iPad or your computer or whatever, uh, it's the Lynchian – it's the actual David Lynch sound design that's going to be the continuity for you, which I think is cool. Yeah.
0: And I think some other folks have pointed out that the glitching stops when Coop and Nido are holding hands, that when they have that personal connection, they stop glitching, and it becomes continuous and smooth. But when they're not holding hands, the glitching starts. Love
2: conquers fear. Yes. I was just thinking that – It's interesting how Lynch has all of these complaints about technology over the years, from chapter stops to commercial breaks uh, to people watching TV on their phones or watching movies on their phones. I, I pulled up something. Uh, That he said back in 2013 about how appalling it was to him to watch a movie in really any context other than a movie theater. Oh, and I guess I could also mention his resistance to the DVD technology when Mulholland Drive was put out. He was really really upset that Laura Elena, is it Harding or Herring, the uh, the one of the leads, signed up to do a nude scene in his film, and he thought she signed up to do a nude scene that would be projected on a handful of movie screens, but not available for. Joe Pervy viewer to pause or freeze frame on a DVD at home forevermore. And so he sort of pixelated uh, or insisted on pixelating some of the nudity in that scene because he thought the sort of home video technology was like a bastardization of the experience or an additional invasion of her privacy that she hadn't signed up for. But um, anyway, he said in 2013... If you have the same movie on a little computer screen with bad sound, and this is the way people are seeing films now, it's such a shame. It's a shameful, shameful thing. It's so pathetic. End quote. Um, but then he goes on in that same interview to praise television over film and to say how all the interesting, oh, tourist stuff is happening in television now. And I, I just find all of this really odd four years later that he's working in the medium of television again for a company who is putting four episodes of his new work, up online, where people are going to watch them on their phones and iPads. In fact, the new season is very, very easy to watch on an iPad, as I'm doing right now, and as I've done for most of the viewings of these episodes that I've done. And so, I don't know, he's ended up in this really strange... Place where he wants to condemn any sort of movie-watching experience that's not an actual cinema, um, while creating content that's going to be primarily watched on computers, iPads, and phones. And when you think, too, about the way that the original Twin Peaks was broadcast, I know the technology was different back then, um, but most of us experienced that show and got to love it through really, really low-res means, right? We watched it on VHS tapes that were put into clunky VCRs and played on these old four by three CRT televisions. And we had all kinds of tracking issues or we had the bad EP quality tapes from the Hollywood video, or we had second generation dubs and we interrupted them to, you know, get snacks and live our lives and what have you. And we grew to love it. Like it's it just, it's such a disconnect between what the artist thinks his work is doing and how people are actually experiencing it. It's fascinating to me.
0: So back in this... Weird place where Coop is. There's this loud, violent banging. More expert sound design from David Lynch because that banging is really disturbing. And Nido takes Coop up a ladder, and when they get up on top of a ladder, it, they're in this on top of this like comically small box floating in space. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, but the first thing I thought of was a TARDIS.
1: Sure, it's bigger on the inside. Exactly.
0: And there's like this bell like hood that takes up about one one one-third or one-fourth of the space in the top of this little box and Nido pulls a lever on the bell and there's this like crackle of electricity and she's flung off and flies into space Coop is just sort of watching all this scared kind of the same way he watched Laura fly out of the Black Lodge with this sort of look of Kind of fear and helplessness on his face. Then he climbs back down the ladder, and and now we've got this interaction with something that had previously been seen, but we didn't talk about this sort of like steampunky electric panel on the wall. Which you know, for our numerologically inclined listeners, uh, when he first arrived, the the number fifteen appeared on it. When he comes back into the box from being up on top with Nido, it's five, and then now Dale is interacting with someone that we probably didn't expect to see at this point in the show. It is the same actress that played Ronette Pulaski, but she's credited as American Girl in the credits. I don't, I don't know what that means. Uh, uh, Jeff Jensen has a, a long riff about the song American Girl by Tom Petty and how it relates to all this, but I'm not going to go into that, but you can check it out if, if you want. And she says that her mother is coming when the banging starts up again. And so there are these interactions with Coop and the panel, and Ronette actually has a watch, and she sees time on her watch go from 252 to 253 uh, and then the lamp turns on there's a blue rose oh i forgot to mention that when coop is up on top of the box he sees the huge spectral head of colonel briggs float by and saying the words blue rose you know just another bit of impressionism in this scene Uh, and eventually coop gets sucked into this panel uh, except for his shoes
1: well, and his shoes, and, and as we also find out later when we see him come out on the other side, his lapel pin is missing, which, which actually may be uh, an important clue... Uh, to what's going on here. I mean, you mentioned about the the times. Of course, we've got two panels that read 15 and 3. We've just seen Garland Briggs, who's a military man. 1,500 hours is military time for 3 p.m. And as you mentioned, the clock ticks over from 2.52 to 2.53. We later find out the significance of that time. Those, of course, are numbers that we've been given earlier by the uh, uh, by the uh, evolved arm uh, and and we find out that that's a pretty significant time something important happens at that time and you would think that uh, it would be over by by 3 pm but we see cooper go through this second panel uh, and when he comes out on the other side, his lapel pin is missing. Uh, and and it's interesting because, as, as someone uh, has pointed out, I didn't catch this originally, the lapel pin isn't there at the very beginning when Cooper is meeting with the person we think of as the giant, but who is credited as multiple question marks. And Cooper's not wearing the lapel pin there when he's told these things and he says, I understand. And, and of course, up until now, Cooper hasn't really shown a great deal of of understanding. If anything, uh, he's appeared befuddled a good bit of the time. Uh, And so we may be seeing a later scene uh, after Cooper has come to understand all these things that are still confusing, uh, both to him uh, and at this point. To us, really.
2: Yeah, I'd like to raise a question, which is what— Uh, is Koopa trying to accomplish here? Or rather, is he able to alter what's going on? Can he succeed or fail? Is he doomed in this sequence? Or are there moves he can make? I I guess I started thinking about it like a quest or a video game or something where you're in this foreign realm with these clues and to a puzzle you have to solve. Could he have gone a different way? Could he have fallen out of the top of the box or fallen off of the top of the box in space and ceased to exist? Could he have failed to get back to our reality what what are the stakes and is he succeeding or failing
0: we have a a helper in the form of nido and then the american girl telling coop to be quiet leading him up the the ladder and then you know telling him that he needs to go because the american girl's mother is coming any guesses as to who her mom is
2: No, but wait, is is Nido definitely helping, or is she an obstacle? I wasn't sure which side she was on to the extent there are sides. It does seem like the Ronette character, the American girl, is trying to help him, but I'm not sure. And then later in the episode, or in the next episode, we're going to learn that Cooper has been tricked, right? Philip Gerard says that he's been tricked from uh, the Black Lodge. So, you know, I didn't know if that referred to something that went on before he was in this realm, before he was out in the Violet space, or if it was... Something that happened with Nido or the American Girl. Could he have made a different move and come back to our reality more in possession of his faculties or ended up in some complete other place or shown up at the right time instead of the wrong time?
1: Right yeah and I don't know the answer to that, but you know when you when you're looking at these two characters, you've got nido, who obviously her her most distinguishing characteristic visually is the fact that her her eyes appear to be shown sewn shut or non-existent or uh, and and that of, of course has to be taken as in some way. Uh, a callback to the murder victim in South Dakota and and Phyllis, the woman that uh, Evil Cooper shot, because both of them had their eyes uh, very deliberately taken out. Uh, I still think of her as Ronette because it's the same actress. I think it's interesting and maybe a little bit odd that she's credited as American Girl. When, when you ask me who American Girl's mother is, uh, my assumption is she's the... David Lynch remix of American woman. So whether there's a good way out for Cooper, I don't know. He's been dropped into non-existence. So I'm I'm thinking that uh, really anything that leads you back to existence is probably a good option.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I, I think that her mother is Laura R- regardless. Nido clearly doesn't want Coop to go into the panel too soon, or she seems to not want that. Uh, she starts kind of slapping him in the face when he gets close to, getting sucked into the panel early before they go up on top. And so maybe that's a question. What would have happened if he had gone through early? Uh, Would it have prevented Bad Coop from enacting his scheme? Would it have attracted the attention of the spectral figure in the box that at that very same moment was eating the heads of Sam and Tracy in New York? I mean, we, we obviously don't know.
2: Right. I mean, it's all sort of back to my fundamental question about the administrative governance of the Black Lodge and related realms. Like, I still don't know to what extent these things are malleable at all. Do these things run according to their own principles and you get pushed through them like uh, a piece of piecework on a conveyor belt? Or do you uh, have some agency over what's going on?
0: Also, 315 is Coop's room at the Great Northern Right, and we saw we saw three and fifteen appear on that panel.
2: Yeah, I like that. That's a cool.
1: Yeah, it
0: is. So then we were now we're we're in in South Dakota. Where Bad Coop is driving down the highway, and his clock reads two fifty three. Um, he's 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 having trouble. He can't stay on the road, and his cigarette lighter is making noise. And an evil coop is staring at it. it. Eventually, what what we see is that we get a flashback to where confused dale is with the actress that played renette and then you know kind of flash back and forth and back and forth between bad coop in the car and the space box or wherever uh, the other coop is and then f when bad coop p- pulls off the road or runs off the road the cigarette lighter starts scratching even more and then red drapes appear in front of bad coop's view of the front of his car
1: Well, it's interesting to me, all of this stuff gets tied into electricity. I mean, we've got Cooper, when he first approaches the panel, appears to get an electric shock. We've got NIDO going up on top of the space box, pulling the lever, and there's clearly some electrical uh, response to that. Obviously, going back to the previous episode with the appearance of the mutated arm, the evolved arm, and there appears to be electricity surrounding it. And we see evil Cooper looking at the cigarette lighter uh, as it's crackling, and and eventually uh, the Good Dale comes out through an electric socket. And I, I'm wondering, is bad Cooper concerned that if his, his plan fails and he's sucked back into the Black Lodge, is good Cooper going to emerge through his cigarette lighter. Is that what he's concerned about? And is that, if if Ken's right, uh, that Nido may not have been a friend, uh, is that where Cooper would have gone if she'd gotten out of the way and he'd gone through the first panel instead of the second one?
2: For a smidge of time, the lighter itself does appear to resemble that lapel pin that we've discussed. I'm just noticing.
0: Really? <laughs> hmm. I, di- I didn't notice that.
2: There's almost like a bird-like kind of a shape to the glow, but it's, it's real quick.
0: Ken did some research on what's what's actually on the pen, something that had been in the back of my mind but had never really looked into. What did you find out, Ken?
2: Well, it's definitely a bird of some kind. People have screen capped a whole bunch of images of it, and you can see the wings of the bird curling around to form uh, like an arc over its head and some folks have associated it with uh, a Tibetan representation of the Phoenix myth obviously the Tibetan thing would have a particular resonance for Cooper's character some other folks say it's the crest of a clan in Japan the Mori clan I think that it's a it's a crane that is a, a, a crest of that clan to me it looks like the uh, Battlestar Galactica pin from the uh, the new series the remake <laughs> of the series uh, Um, I I like the phoenix imagery a lot. I mean, a a Tibetan representation of the phoenix myth has so many kinds of resonance for Twin Peaks, both old and new. And, of course, what we're getting here is Cooper reborn in in one sense or another. Um, One of them is sort of burning and the other is sort of rising from the ashes. So uh, I like it quite a bit if that's what's actually going on.
1: All right. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention uh, a bird imagery. You're right. Tibet and the phoenix rising, I mean, there's a a lot of resonance to that. Uh, But when you say a bird and you're talking about Cooper, the first thing I think about is the fact that Cooper doesn't like birds. Uh, there's also a, another piece out there on the uh, the 25 years later website, a uh, piece by Eileen Michaels, uh, who's who's undertaken a similar type of analysis uh, to Ken, and and in looking at it, uh, she thinks that there's a change in the pins over the course of these first few episodes, and that at one point uh, the pin resembles the uh, the starburst pattern on the uh, floor of the Silver Mustang Casino that we're about to get to in a little bit, uh, which, of course, has particular resonance for what becomes of good Cooper when he comes out the other side. That's cool.
0: Yeah, and, you know, back to the theory that you kind of proposed a minute ago, Kyle, I I think that's plausible. It does seem like Bad Coop kind of waits to keep the garmin Bozia that he's about to throw up uh, he tries to keep hold it in until he confirms that dougie's in the black lodge so he has that vision uh in front of him uh that once once right. he pukes out the garmin Bozia, then the black lodge knows that it's time to come get him and since he was able to get dougie to puke it up first the black lodge took him uh instead of bad coop
1: yeah he who pukes first loses
0: yeah i don't know that's always the case uh, i've seen people come back <laughs> Come back and do much better after puking first. <laughs> it's been a long time, though. Yeah. Uh, before Dougie was throwing up, I, I forgot to mention that he's you know, obviously wearing an owl ring, uh, and his left arm hasn't been working very well, uh, not unrelatedly to the fact that he is wearing the ring. We know that the owl ring, in the case of Laura, seemed to be how she got there, uh, into the Black Lodge, instead of being taken over by Bob at, at, at the exact moment that she died. And we know that Teresa Banks had an owl ring. Uh, and we know that that owl ring appeared, you know, in, in Fire Walk with me. So I, I'm wondering if it was integral to Bad Coop's plan or extra insurance to get the Black Lodge to take him, because it seems like it wasn't necessary for him to be wearing the owl ring.
1: I don't know. Well, but if if you've got two versions of Cooper in the world at this point, you've got the real Cooper, obviously, somewhere outside of our plane of existence. But you've got uh, you've got Dougie, and you've got Evil Cooper, and Evil Cooper is the one they're looking for. I, I mean, anything that's going to draw their attention to Dougie uh, for them to pull him in instead of the one they're actually going for. I mean, I, I can I can see that, and it certainly looks like. He's done everything he can possibly do uh, to prevent what seems like a pretty unpreventable uh, deadline from hitting him. I mean, this is sort of like uh, Cinderella knowing that midnight is coming and finding somebody else uh, to to stick in the carriage before it turns back into a pumpkin. So I, I would think if you got an owl ring, yeah, you use it to keep yourself out of the Black Lodge.
2: My take generally on Dougie is that he's the Philip Girard, he's the Mike to Evil Cooper's Bob, and that either Coop, from the Black Lodge, has managed to create him to serve as a check on uh, Bad Cooper, or the Black Lodge itself, in its habit of creating duplicates, doubles, and doppelgangers, has done that. He seems to be much worse at his job of tracking down Bob than Philip Girard was when he was Mike because, uh, you know, he's, he doesn't seem to be particularly involved with him or close to him or uh, have any idea what's going on with Bad Coop. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if Bad Coop had no idea that Dougie Jones existed. Uh, on the other hand, Philip Girard was a chemically inhibited shoe salesman <laughs> for a long time, right? Uh, so I don't know that he always knew what he was doing either. But I just assume the hour ring came along with the territory of trying to balance out the evil malevolence of uh bad cooper in the world giving him some sort of a tool or or source of power to do that however ineptly he might be wielding it
0: so under that theory who's trying to kill him
2: who's trying to kill whom
0: dougie or whoever's in dougie's house
2: oh yeah no great question uh
0: because if 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 bad coop doesn't know about dougie which i i mean i think that's an interesting theory the philip gerard uh Comparison is potentially very apt, but I do think that Bad Coop has put this in place, has put Dougie in place to go into the Black Lodge instead of him.
1: Yeah, and I would agree with that. That was my reading of it as well, uh, because he's clearly waiting on something. Again, you'd mentioned about how it looks like at the same time Dougie is getting sick at his stomach, uh, Bad Coop is having to hold all this Garmin Bogia and motor oil inside himself uh, until he sees that Dougie is in there. So I think clearly he's aware of Dougie's existence. Uh, you know, of course, when we get Mike giving a fairly uh, straightforward bit of, of narrative exposition when Dougie shows up in the Black Lodge in the next scene. You know, he he says someone manufactured him, but he doesn't say who. He may not know who manufactured Dougie, uh, but certainly there was a purpose. And, and the way I read it was bad Cooper manufactured him so that there would be someone to be sucked into the Black Lodge in his place. And with the expectation that the good Cooper would then come out and replace him, uh, he's got these people positioned in the neighborhood neighborhood uh, to shoot him when he when he goes out so that at that point it fulfills what Mike has said about how one of them has to die. Uh, evil Cooper wants Dougie in the Black Lodge uh, and wants good Cooper dead and now he's the only Cooper left and he doesn't have to worry about going anywhere.
2: Here's my slight refinement on the Mike-Bob duality idea. Mike and Bob are yin and yang. They're forces of of good and evil, and they exist uh, in flux with each other over not just the earthly plane, not just the Black Lodge, but all dimensions of the Marvel multiverse. And when one is sort of ascendant, the other is descendant, accordingly, uh, perhaps across all planes and, and all realities. So while evil is ascendant for the moment, while Bob is more powerful, Mike is less powerful, and that would explain how Bob, in the form of Bad Cooper, could know that the Mike force is out to get him, and is out to figure out what he's doing, or counter him out, or become ascendant again, and make sure that he goes back to the Black Lodge, where he can wreak less havoc. And so he's got plans in place, including the assassination of Dougie Jones, who is currently embodying the Mike power. The Mike power is so weak at the moment that Dougie Jones doesn't even know what he's doing, or have any plans afoot, to foil Cooper, uh, because, like Philip Gerard up until a certain point when he became uh, quite woke about what was going on in the original series. You know, Dougie just uh, doesn't know what's up.
1: Well, and the other thing that I would add to bolster that theory is that my reading of it is clearly the most straightforward and most obvious reading, which is almost certainly wrong.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, and and, and also, Mike is, if if it is the case that Mike wants to get Bad Coop back into the Black Lodge, Philip Jeffries does too, or someone who bad coop thinks is philip jeffries I, I don't know how that fits into your cosmology ken
2: i, I don't either jeffries is always a wild card right. i've never understood where he fits in at any point in the in the series he's fascinating
0: but, I, but I, I mean to the extent that mike is bob's yang to yang or whatever um they used to be aligned right they used to hunt together
2: the, the hunting together period yeah the exactly. convenience store era
0: <laughs> everybody has a convenience store period in their life some people just don't get past it
1: that's right
2: Mike, Bob, Yin Yang, Dante Randall
0: So, Ken, or actually Kyle, I think we haven't talked about Jade, Dougie's companion who we see at the beginning of the, the first shot of Dougie in the Las Vegas suburbs. What were your thoughts about her?
1: Well, and this is really uh, going off of something that that Ken uh, mentioned last time, and and he makes an extremely good point about how the new characters, the new female characters specifically introduced in the first two episodes, uh, really did not fare well. And because of that consistent problem, it it really invoked the idea of of fridging these characters. And and so it was interesting to me in episode three and then continuing over into episode four, uh, that Jade's really the first new female character that's been introduced in the new series uh, who doesn't appear to be there for that purpose. Uh, she has some degree of agency, uh, and maybe we're seeing a little bit of a reversal because we have, you know, Ronette, we have Jade, uh, we have the junkie mother who shows up later, the lady who gives Cooper the quarters in the casino, the old lady in the casino who takes advantage of his jackpot abilities, Dougie's wife, Janie E., Denise Bryson, Agent Tamara Preston. I mean, all of these characters suffer No harm in the course of these episodes. And even Nido. Uh, willingly sacrifices herself rather than being the victim of someone else's actions. Now, admittedly, uh, this theory is not helped by the slow pan over pictures of bikini-clad women that we later see at FBI headquarters. And JR, as you've pointed out, uh, the fact that Jade is uh, naked in the first scenes that she's in doesn't really help with that. But, you know, even though she's certainly portrayed from Dougie's point of view as a sex object, You know, we're not seeing her, unlike Tracy, for instance, we're not seeing her doing anything with Dougie. We're seeing her afterward. We're seeing her getting paid. Uh, And she's the one directing the action. We see her then go get into the shower and when he is experiencing whatever he's going through and he tries to get in there he, he tries to open the door but the door is locked she's been paid, she's now inaccessible to him and makes it clear later that she's doing him a huge favor by as she puts it, giving him two rides uh, so to me, she's the one who's actually taking the action here she's actually the one who tells him hey get out of my car and go call for help uh, and she's certainly no victim in this relationship.
2: Well we'll get to Agent Tamara Palmer later and I think that the treatment of her in these uh, two hours is is really disgusting. But uh, I'll give you some agency on behalf of female characters. I'll even give you that it's okay to have this incredibly gratuitous full nudity scene as soon as we have an episode that passes the Bechdel test, uh, which which hasn't
1: happened yet. <laughs> okay, fair enough.
0: And can you mention the, the, the mother across the street or a parent mother? We, while this is going on, or actually after... Dougie and Jade leave, a little, a boy sees some people put something underneath Dougie's car. And we see this uh, woman who appears to be strung out on various drugs, drink some whiskey and take a pill and scream one, one, nine over and over again, uh, which Kyle, you thought that may be foreshadowing Cooper's need to call for help, but run through the black lodge, which is why it's reversed.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's, she's saying 119, and obviously we've got a lot of important three number. Combinations in the course of these first few episodes, uh, and it may be one of those. But it just was interesting to me that one one nine is of course nine one one backwards. Uh, the very next scene we cut to after her, we see the highway patrol arriving at Bad Coop's wrecked car with lights and sirens going. And and as you mentioned, uh, Cooper has to call for help. That's what Jade tells him to go do. Now he kind of does it in a roundabout way, but you know there there is a call for help implicit in nine one one.
2: The mother reminded me a little bit of Ronette too, in the way that she looked, which of course makes me think of Ronette in the um, astral plane, Black Lodge place, wherever she is. Uh, and of course, there's the discussion of a mother there too. So I don't, I don't know if that's meant to be a resonance. But well,
0: as I recall, Ronette's mother does appear in season two, or maybe even season one, uh, as well as as well as her father who worked at at the mill. That's why that's why Josie ostensibly closed the mill, but I think there is a shot of, of her mother and she does not look anything like the The woman in Vegas.
1: Yeah, there's there's a there's a point where Deputy Hawk is is talking to the two of them there in the hospital, and they're describing you know her working at the perfume counter, and it's the sweetest smelling job she ever had. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the same moment at which Deputy Hawk sees reflected in the hospital mirror uh, Philip Gerard, and and then proceeds to follow him down toward the morgue. That's right.
2: I, that's all stuff that gets knitted into the pilot for the European. Pilot, I think, when they wanted to turn it into like a movie they could show as a one-off on European TV, and they added a bunch of stuff in about Bob that ended up getting seeded into future episodes in the U.S. I
0: remember <sighs> the brief period of time where that was the only version of the pilot you could rent at a video store.
2: Right. That that was more than a brief period of time. That yeah. was yeah, years. No, yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, you're
0: right. You're right. You're right. It, it was. It was infuriating.
2: I learned to like it though. I, I have a great affection for the European pilot.
0: <laughs> So we get a brief reprieve of Hawk deliberating over whether or not it's about the bunny or is it? No, it's not about the bunny. It is. Um, it's a kind of ridiculous scene, uh, but you know, it, it's, it's weird because it's almost like a, a caricature of the more organic humor we saw in seasons one and two of Twin Peaks.
2: I'm on record as saying I hate all of these scenes in which Andy and Lucy and Hawk look like morons. So I'll I'll just uh, note that my objections are already on the record and let Kyle talk.
1: And I agree with Ken on this one particular. I mean, I like the the bit with the idea of the chocolate bunnies, which of course we have Cooper you know recording to Diane about. Uh, so that part itself is is kind of neat. Uh, but as with everything that was a callback in these two episodes to the original series, whether it was the humor over the chocolate bunnies uh, or later Bobby Briggs reaction to the sight of Laura's prom picture, it was just over the top and, and it was, it was neat. Um, it, it, it kind of recaptured a little bit of it, but it was uh, caricature is exactly the right word for it. And, and particularly you know, Andy and Lucy were never the brightest bulbs, but, but, Andy was you know, a good-hearted guy, and Lucy at least went and got a book about Tibet so she could learn about what Agent Cooper was discussing. You know, She wasn't misunderstanding the concept of how the telephone worked. And at this point, Andy and Lucy are now Joey and Phoebe level stupid, and, and that does bother me that they've taken them to that level.
0: You know, it could be that they've got lead pipes in their house, but their son seems to be doing okay, yeah. or maybe not. I don't know.
2: Yeah, is that how you interpret that? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know that he would have the uh, ability to ride a motorcycle in terms of balance. But and then the, the, next, the next scene we get is Doc uh, outside of his trailer wearing a gas mask, using this like Rube Goldberg device to hang up shovels and move them along in an assembly line, even though there are only five of them. Uh, and he's painting them a gold color. And the first thing I thought was, and I don't know why I thought this, is that he's running a scam where he's selling fake gold shovels to towns and municipalities for breaking ground on new projects. Uh, (laughs) 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 And I defy any of you to come up with a better explanation than why he would be painting those shovels gold.
2: That's great. I give that an A+. Yes, absolutely. All right. You
0: heard it here first. The Nixon presidential library and the golden shovel scam wrapped in podcast first. Now we are about to be introduced to Mr. Jackpot. Jade drops off Coop at the silver Mustang casino and we proceed to what may be one of the greatest scenes in the history of Twin Peaks. You you know, it's just amazing. Coop is, is really disoriented. He barely understands how to get out of the Jade's Jeep. And wanders into the casino with $5 to call for help. The security card directs him to get change from a casino cashier. The cashier, who I'm pretty sure is wearing a green owl ring, yeah. proceeds to give him a cup of quarters. He watches somebody else win a jack and proceeds to get uh, 29 mega jackpots. Is that
1: right? Or did it wind up being 30? Depends if you count the little old lady. That's right. That's right. He ends up,
0: he ends up helping... the the lady and you know we get this uh every time he sees or every, every time he's about to win a jackpot he sees up here over a particular slot machine this like hazy gold rimmed vision of what appears to be the the black lodge although one detail is that the chevron pattern on the floor is white and red as opposed to white and black have we ever seen a white and red chevron floor before
1: not that i recall
0: and we hear this sound That kind of uh, guitar chord with the vibrato arm making it all wavy at the end. That we we hear that tone in the Black Lodge in seasons one and two, and I think in Firewalk with Me. Anyway, Coop, Coop helps a, a somebody who is initially quite jealous of his winnings win a jackpot of her own, and and we see him smile when she wins, which is interesting. I in these scenes of the confused Coop, the first thing that came to mind for me was the movie Starman, a John Carpenter film from nineteen eighty four. Where uh, this uh, ball of light alien comes to Earth, trying to make contact because he thinks we're going to be friendly, but he's been shot down by a colleague of Colonel Briggs, uh, and proceeds to clone, create a clone of the deceased husband of this widow, and the the clone, the, the actor is Jeff Bridges, and he he becomes a clone, but he. he He can barely talk and has to sort of learn how to be a human and and engage with the world over the course of the film. Uh, And I couldn't stop thinking of Coop for some reason, but there are other parallels, too
1: yeah I viewed it very much as Rain Man just because of the association with with Dustin Hoffman's character, you know, being able to count cards and help out in a casino. And the neat thing about it is you've you've got this humorous exaggeration of of the the childlike innocence and the the wonder at the world around him that we saw in uh, Cooper in the original series. And the neat thing about it is we've seen him in several different variations, but so far, Kyle McLaughlin really hasn't played straight-up original series Dale Cooper, but he's played little bits and pieces and elements of it, which I think is just fascinating.
2: It is fascinating, but it really doesn't work for me. I have to say, I wish I found these casino scenes funny. They go on way too long, and they rest on a premise that I just have a hard time dealing with. It's a little bit like uh, The Sixth Sense, except in comedy. (laughs) Um, And I I suppose this involves ruining the famous twist ending of Sixth Sense for anybody uh, that hasn't seen it. But the D is, you know, Bruce Willis was dead all along, and it's one of these things where if you go back and watch it, even um, for two minutes after you know the twist ending, you're like, well, the first time he went to get coffee, somebody would try to talk to him about the coffee, and he would realize that they couldn't see or hear him, and that would be the end of that. Like, he would he would know that he was dead in like minutes. He couldn't have the whole action of this movie. That makes no sense. Uh, here, it all rests on people not telling the Dougie character, "Hey, Dougie, you don't look like you at all. You seem as though you've had some sort of a massive stroke, <laughs> right?" Like, um, it just I I can't buy action that anybody is having with him that doesn't involve them telling him something thing is seriously, seriously wrong, and he should immediately go to a hospital. And I understand, like that's the joke, and I'm totally failing to um, pick up on what what Lynch is trying to do here. But uh, it just, I can't get past it.
0: Well, not to be argumentative, Ken, but that is in fact what Jade said to him that she thought he had a stroke. Right.
2: Yeah, but she says it like um, as the eighth or ninth thing that she says, right? I mean, I've been waiting for her to say it for um, I don't know, like seven entire minutes before she actually brings it up. Like you're right, um, and and she has a little bit of plausible deniability because, of course, she's trying to extract herself from this situation right. with uh, a client. So uh, I, I get her a little bit, but like every interaction that he has in the casino, I felt like a casino employee should have called the hospital. <laughs> I felt like you know we're gonna get uh, Ethan Soupley later, right? And uh, I think it's Ethan Suplee right and his uh, and his wife uh, with the hot dog talking to him like I just thought the first thing they should have said is what's wrong with you like it's 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 just like grating to me you know and and I get it like you're supposed to put that aside and just laugh at what's going on but I, I have some sort of a hang up
0: no I think there's more to it Ken I I think that uh, what's a better mark for a casino than somebody who's mentally disabled Right. Why? Why? Why on earth would they turn them away? They don't turn away, you know, a woman who appears to be homeless, spending what money she has on a slot machine. Of course, they're not going to you know, turn away somebody who may have had a traumatic brain injury. Okay, but this is, this <laughs> like, is like he's ever going to know when to stop playing.
2: Yeah, but this is requiring us to do an awful lot of the work for the narrative, right? It's an it's an awful lot of like uh, fan wanking. I mean, at a certain point, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but he's going to be home with his wife, who doesn't seem to notice for a very long time, for many hours and overnight. Like, uh, your wife would be the first person to be like, "This isn't you. You don't. You shouldn't seem this way."
0: I mean, that, my thought as Coop or walked into the casino was this is weird why would they let him walk in and but I I easily answered it for myself because this is a casino and they don't care about people
1: well the the other thing to me that's interesting and and Ken I'm with you all the way on this but it's just curious to me that this is the thing that we're, we're getting hung up on. We're fine with the idea that Mike chopped off his arm, which later evolved into a midget that spoke backwards and then later evolved further into a large electrical tree with a brain that has a doppelganger that's evil that dropped Dale Cooper down into non-existence from which he fell onto a porch overlooking the ocean that turned out to be a box floating in space with someone's mother banging on the door and then he floated through an electrical panel and appeared in a house where a guy who had been manufacturing for a purpose, just puked so that could get sucked back into the Black Lodge, and this is the part that's bothering you?
2: Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, um, and when you put it that way, it sounds absurd. But it, there's an old episode of The Critic, which is a brilliant, short-lived animated series uh, starring John Lovett, where The Critic's father is mentally ill, and he has thrown all of the silverware up onto the ceiling and like glued it there, and then he's done the same thing with his pets. So like the dog's paws are glued to the ceiling, and they're just like howling forlornly from the ceiling. And the critic, Jay, says to his dad, Dad, I understand the silverware, but the pets? And his dad says, You understand the silverware? <laughs> 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 I suppose that this, uh, this Dougie stuff is really like my you understand the silverware moment. Like, there's <laughs> there's no reason for me to buy Garmin Bosia, but not Dougie Jones. And yet here we are. <laughs>
0: The last scene of this episode is a is in Philadelphia where we're pleased to see Gordon Cole as well as Albert and the newly introduced special agent Tamara Preston who are discussing some other unrelated case, uh, the Congressman's Dilemma, uh, th- where you know there's a set of clues and it's just kind of left there for other agents to figure out that we'll never see again, we assume. But then Tamara has been looking into what happened to our friends in New York and shows photographs from the scene of Sam and Tracy's mutilated bodies and tells them that there's the, the cops don't even know who owns the building. There's no forensic evidence whatsoever. And at that point, Cole gets a call and is told that Cooper's on the line. And then we go into Gordon's room. He takes the call and finds out that Cooper is in South Dakota. Uh, in his office is a enormous and terrifying picture of an atomic bomb exploding, uh, as well as a framed uh, portrait of Kafka. Uh, we know that Kafka is one of David Lynch's favorite artists, or writers rather, and has attempted to make some sort of film of the metamorphosis on multiple occasions without success. Uh, and then we basically the show, uh, as we as we know it, ends with Gordon saying that he's going to be in South Dakota for a 9 a.m. interview with Coop. And then at the very end, we're back at the Roadhouse, uh, and a band called the Cactus Blossoms, uh, plays and uh, they are a a great band. I mean, it's this is they're they're like if like No Depression magazine were to be like transformed into like the platonic ideal of <laughs> of a band. uh in, in that venue, it, w- it would turn out to be the Cactus Blossoms. It's a really great song. Uh and I'll you should check out the lyrics. Maybe I'll post them uh, with the podcast because they are uh, evocative of a lot of things that are going on in the show. And he, before we end this episode three and start talking about episode four Do any of you have any final thoughts to add
2: i have two personal connections to the uh ending sequences to note um and i think i'd like to do a quick ken's beverage corner
0: excellent sounds good
2: So the personal connections, uh, a generation before I did a college thesis on David Lynch, my mother did her college thesis on Franz Kafka um, and wrote it in German. So uh, apparently there's some genetic predisposition to to this type of material. Um, And uh, the Cactus Blossoms have a pedal steel player who uh, changed the life of my friend and Wednesday therapist, uh, James Syme, who runs a comic book store here in San Francisco, by selling him his first comic book. Um, So James wanted me to mention that. He's, I think it's Daredevil 154. He bought it for a dime um, and he will forever love the Cactus Blossoms because of that. Um, and uh, I've have, I have derived some very uh, transitive benefit uh, from that experience because I get to um, talk about life and pop culture with James every Wednesday. So, wanted to mention those personal connections. As for Ken's Beverage Corner, which really needs its own theme music, I think. Uh, I I want to talk about uh, the... Hello! (laughs) <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so uh, I, I said I wouldn't sully uh, Ken's beverage corner with anything related to uh, motor oil and poisonous vomit. Um, but uh, but here we are. We we've been discussing this week the uh, the corn and oil, which is a very fine Caribbean beverage that is made from fine blackstrap rum and falernum, which is a flavoring made from uh, rum infused with uh, lime peel and almonds and um, allspice and nutmeg and things of that nature. It's a it's a wonderful. wonderful drink uh which none of us will ever consume again thanks to the fact that i've now tied it in our minds to uh, the scent of (laughs) carmen and uh, otherworldly vomit um so uh you know uh screw you david lynch for doing that to me and one of my favorite beverages uh i will never forgive you uh this has been (laughs) Ken's beverage corner
0: (laughs) why is it called corn and oil if none of the ingredients have anything to do with either corn or oil
2: First of all, how dare you? <laughs> the uh, no, the oil part comes from the fact that uh, the black blackstrap uh, rum looks like looks like oil. It's 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 black and oily. Um, the corn part is a good question. Oh, probably because uh, there's like a corn syrup straw color sort of a um, color to falernum. It's 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 sort of corn um, kernel colored.
1: Not, not every beverage name can be as literal as Jack and Coke, Jr. You know, that's just the way it works. The, the one thing that I want to add, and this is more following up on, on Ken's point prior to the beverage corner with, with comic books, um, and, and I don't think that this is intentional, but it just struck me. As we're going into the roadhouse, we see the roadhouse sign reflected in a puddle. And that image is just straight out of the fearful symmetry issue of Watchmen. Again, I have no reason to think that's intentional, but good grief, it's just absolutely straight out of that issue.
2: I love that, and I'm keeping a personal tally of uh, your Watchmen references versus Jr's Carnival references, uh, because uh, I have some money on one side or the other, but I won't reveal which. (laughs) Is there an over-under
1: that you're betting? (laughs) (laughs) Bet the over. Uh
2: I'm, I'm hoping I can keep pace with Carnival and Watchmen by uh, by making my own uh, David Milch references every week. We had Yankton and Edwood uh, last last week, and I'm going to have another one in uh, episode four. So that's Excellent. that's going to be Excellent. my my personal bugaboo.
0: All right, guys, it's time to go. Uh, thank you for listening to episode three of Wrapped in Podcast. We look forward to talking to you again about episode four. Bye bye.
3: No.